Um, who else have you? So who else have you got on this podcast? Um, so the, the we we actually have two more interviews today. I don't know if you're aware of who William Closton is. I'm not. The leader of the FD, so he's the leader of the SDP. Oh wow, cool. Mm, yeah, yeah. The reheated, sort of reformed SDP. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, they're starting to gain a lot of traction now. So he's a really interesting figure to to sort of talk to, and um, we've got Ian Dale as well. Ian Dale's coming up as well. Right. Um, yeah. It's just um, you know, it's various people from different you know political traditions. Really. Where can I find you on Spotify? Um, if you can literally, can, yeah. Can I make a point? So, I can't make a point. It and then the first episode should come up with Paul Embry. Oh, nice. Hello, and welcome to Can I Make a Point? The podcast where we listen to ideas, guests, and on some occasions, even each other. In that spirit, my name's Bradley, and I'm a Conservative. And every week, I'll be joined by my friend, Danny, who is a Socialist. It's a potent blend, I know. Please subscribe and follow The Conversational Lemon on Twitter, at TC underscore Lemon, and on Instagram, at The Conversational Lemon, for updates on new content. On today's episode is Gabriel Pogrand, Times journalist and author of Left Out, the inside story of Labour under Corbyn. In our interview today, we reflect upon Corbyn's time as leader of the Labour Party and what the future holds for the Labour Party. But first, I ask him who he is and what point he wants to make. Yeah, well, I um, so I'm a journalist at Sunday Times, Whitehall correspondent. So my job, my endeavour is to try and tell readers what's going on behind the scenes in SW1 and um, both in the Palace of Westminster and, and further afield looking at day-to-day politics and the personalities driving it and, and also how that intersects with policy and ideas that uh, are, are affecting the country. I um, I wrote this book left out um, because I didn't think that the Corbyn era had been necessarily uh, particularly well reported on um, but not I don't say that from a kind of critical vantage point I say it because whereas previous political projects had their kind of representatives in the media um, Corbynism was quite unusual in that they avowedly weren't um, represented in Fleet Street they didn't have any kind of court reporters there are journalists such as Owen Jones who are known for their proximity to the project but um, you know, it wasn't the sort of thing where we heard what was going on inside Corbyn's court on a weekly basis. Um, when the project, um, and we'll come on to why we refer to it as the project, but um, the Corbyn project in inverted commas, when that well, was roundly defeated in 2019, um, Patrick Maguire, my co-author, and I felt a desire to chronicle what had happened uh, in, in full technicolour for the first time, and you asked what my politics are, um, I'm going to politely decline to answer. Um, you, might posit, you might posit what mine are based on your reading of the book. I hope that they're not too clear, and uh, as, as, a, as a reporter's reporter rather than a columnist, it's something that I'm quite reluctant to open up about, but we can discuss why as yeah. well. 
no i i, I respect that immensely i respect that immensely and um, there's you know particularly in america there's too many journalists who just out there their political you know opinions and it obviously becomes then a political debate rather than rather than sort of like cast iron journalism um so maybe it's best to start from the beginning with corbynism do you think that anyone could have you know anyone could have foreseen corbyn you know coming and being the leader of the labor party um first answer no um second answer definitely not uh, <laughs> answer, it, just because the answer is no it doesn't mean that there weren't some signs um that there were there's a political movement which existed outside of Westminster, which might one day find expression in SW1. I mean, for instance, the financial crisis left a generation of young people disenfranchised. Um, they weren't able to get on the housing ladder. They weren't able to get jobs. Um, it created an entirely new and distinct political constituency, um, which, uh, you know, as we learned in 2015, was desperate for some sort of political expression um, in the kind of formal structure of politics. And then, moreover, um, you, you know, there was this group of people who had left the Labour tent um, over the years in New Labour. Some of them were socialists who always uh, disavowed and didn't like Corbyn, uh, Blair's premiership, rather. So um, I'm thinking about kind of trade unionists, uh, you know, people who would regard themselves as being kind of proper socialists towards the socialist end of the socialist democratic spectrum. Um, Greens, uh, you, you know, again, kind of individuals who felt like New Labour was so unpalatable in the extent to which it compromised with principle in order to be electable. Um, so you have this kind of big coalition of people um, you know, public sector workers, Greens, trade unionists, lefties who'd been left outside the new Labour tent, and then young people who came together. And then uh, in 2015, powered Corbyn's rise to power. I mean, I think, you know, in retrospect, and we all have 2020 vision in retrospect, so mm -hmm. um, I'm not saying I remarked upon this at the time. Um, not, ma not many people, um, not, no, nobody really foresaw Corbyn, but I think that the... Uh, the Labour Party has was had kind of run out of ideas by that point and all the candidates um, were kind of closely linked with either Gordon Brown personally or Tony Blair personally um, almost all of them had worked under new Labour governments as ministers, shadow ministers um, spads um, and in the end what they offered was you know as far as the selectorate was concerned um, various kind of reheated uh, milk toast um, unoriginal um, espousals of uh, of New Labour, which was by that point um, coming on to 13 years in government. So, um, or sorry, not 13 years in government, it had been elected in 1997. So, um, you know, almost two decades ago, it, it was sort of first made its promise to renew the bonds of trust with the British electorate and remake the country. Um, and I think that by 2015, most people had concluded uh, with some cynicism that they hadn't made good on that promise um so offering people a kind of new a, a, another iteration of new labor uh, wasn't good enough and it moreover failing to kind of address some of the structural causes for um the financial crisis as well kind of left corbyn with i'm not going to say an open goal 
but we can understand in retrospect why a kind of anti-establishment candidate had such purchase um, despite being such an anti-establishment unconventional politician. Mm. I mean, just from an outsider's perspective, what always interested me was the reaction to Corbyn from within the Labour Labour Party, because like I understand that many on the Labour right wouldn't consider themselves socialist. But I was wondering, if you, why do you think so many of them were against Corbyn when they understood that the party had a roots in that kind of socialist tradition? Why do you think there was so much like of a wall that he came up against? It's a good question. I mean, I think the first thing I would say is that for better or worse, our, our electoral system, first past the post, requires political parties to be coalitions of different groups. They, they you know, individuals and political movements know that they're not going to, um, you know, they know that the notion of a third party or a new party is a kind of for the birds because of the constraints of our system. So they're forced, rather than vying for popularity and votes publicly, they're forced to engage in the kind of internal battle of ideas. And so Labour's always been a broad coalition and that's been true since its founding. I mean, it's always had a kind of Marxist strain um, as well as a, a kind of more centrist, so-called pragmatic um, predisposition uh, among its MPs and members. Um, but in any case, you know, that doesn't mean that those varying, wing, those competing wings of the party respect the other or their historicity um, or their legitimacy. And um, certainly, you know, within the parliamentary Labour Party, the PLP, um, there's kind of total distaste for um, the kind of Corbyn, Benite tradition. Um, I mean, you look at every aspect of their worldview. I mean, fundamentally, um, you, you know, Corbyn uh, had, had nothing to do with the kind of settlement that New Labour represented, namely, ultimately not embracing, but reluctantly accepting Thatcherism and neoliberalism, trying to kind of ameliorate it and use the proceeds of financial wealth in, in order to kind of redistribute um, resources and money in society. You know, you've got that and then you've got a kind of Atlanticist foreign policy outlook. Um, I mean, that is so mutually exclusive and diametrically opposed to what Corbyn represented um, that, you know, you can understand why when Corbyn won on a platform to end foreign wars, on a platform to kind of offer proper full fat rather than semi-skimmed social democracy, um, you can understand that many Labour parliamentarians took it as a direct affront to their worldview and politics, which is exactly what it was, um, and, they, and, they, and they reacted accordingly. Mm. And obviously, you know, that sort of backlash, it was seen in 20, the 2016, what's been dubbed as the coup by the, by the left of the Labour Party. But I'm sure the right would probably call it a reflex to what had happened during the referendum and the preceding nine months or so. But like, so from, the, from that point onwards, it was sort of like, it was, the commentariat and lots of people in politics sort of saw Corbyn as not, not really being able to have any success at a general election. And then obviously about a year later, less than a year later, um, he doesn't win the 2017 election, but he does much better than expected. So I'm just wondering why, why do you think Labour did do much better than expected in that, in that um, election? Um, and also just to add a little bit of hindsight to it, 
obviously that leaked report on you know Ian McNichol and that kind of stuff has become really contentious now because the the left of the Labour Party sort of sees it as you know the right of the party colluding to stop Corbynism from getting elected I'm wondering where you think that fits in as well great question I mean why did Labour do better than expected um I think that Theresa May um has this large part of responsibility for that I mean it's kind of um amazing how inadequate and politically deficient she was in hindsight I think that she um benefited from a kind of abbreviated Tory leadership campaign because Michael Gove and Boris Johnson blew each other up and then mm. uh, the men in grey suits came out kind of took out and shot Andrea Leadsom so effectively kind of Theresa May was never tested and um we only kind of got to grips with her personality during the 2017 election in which she was revealed to have a kind of fundamental lack of empathy and moreover intellectual agility um, she looked stiff she looked um, as though she was kind of merely repeating lines which had been given to her she um, was also um, unable to counter the very fundamental question which was why have you called this election um, in the beginning she tried to pitch it as a Brexit election and some of the broadcasters were quite compliant with that. In fact, you had the the ticker at the bottom or top of the screen on some news channels immediately characterise it as the Brexit election. And she said that it was the Brexit election because she needed the public to strengthen her hand in Brussels. But really, she wanted the public to strengthen her hand in Brussels. She didn't need the public to strengthen her hand in Brussels. She already had a parliamentary majority. There had already been a referendum. There was no appetite for... Um, you know Brits to go to the polls again um, and she wasn't able to define herself or the election as she is envisaged. Corbyn meanwhile um, we you know it was sort of his first he kind of came into contact with the electorate for the first time um, and um, you know as it happens um, his kind of prioritization of public services managed to hit a nerve. Um, mm -hmm. It has to be said as you say he did better than expected he did deny Theresa May her coveted parliamentary majority. It doesn't mean he came that close to winning. Um, he didn't come close to winning. And um, you know, that probably leads on to your second question, which was, what do I think about this leaked report, which to, to novices um, reveals the fact that during the 2017 election campaign, uh, the staff at Southside, Labour headquarters, most of whom were linked to the new Labour years, um, they organised this kind of secret fund where they bankrolled the parliamentary campaigns of various um, MPs who they thought would be um, would be would lose their seats um, amid the kind of blue tsunami um, presented by Theresa May at the outset of the, of the election. This was done under the nose of Corbyn and his uh, and, and his leader's office, and um, you know now the people who did it. Um, they include uh, Sam Matthews, who was a, a new, uh, sort of an enforcer of the then general secretary of the party, Ian McNichol. Um, he was also intimately involved in anti-Semitism, which I'm sure we'll come on to. But um, basically, these people say that they genuinely felt that Labour MPs were going to lose. And they thought that Labour itself, they thought his existence was imperiled. And so their justification is they were merely trying to save the seats of people who would be required to build the party back from the brink of de destruction in the wake of that electoral event. So um, they don't. They, I, I think that 
you know, the left says it was sabotage because they ended up funneling resources to these individual candidates in secret and not so secretly fighting what was generally a defensive campaign. Um, those close to Corbyn say that it, it became clear that the public mood had shifted and they never they were never prepared to acknowledge that and fight an accordingly offensive campaign. Um, but I've never seen any evidence that that was done out of a kind of reluctance or a belief that Corbyn would win only if they were to pour money into marginal seats that, you know, previously they never thought they could win. I think that they genuinely, like the media class, like the polls, just got the election or got the public mood wrong um, and really did believe that the best they could do mm. was defend people like Tom Watson, Joan Ryan seats um, and... Um, you know, there's obviously kind of a partisanship to the people that they believed deserved being saved, albeit the Patrick Hennigans of this world, he being the former executive director of elections. And they, they've since said that people such as John Trickett, a kind of Corbyn Easter shadow cabinet minister, they too were in receipt of these extra resources. So um, it's, an, it's an interesting question and one which will, um, which has already kind of served as a stab in the back, stab in the front narrative for the left. Mm. I think, especially one of the biggest tests for like the Corbyn element, as you mentioned, the book was the Salisbury attack because, like as you mentioned, Corbyn's kind of had been going on Bush Day quite a lot, and there's obviously that anti-imperialism in the in the streak of the far left of Corbyn's element, and so would it be fair to say that Corbyn was at least sympathetic to Putin and Russia, and that's why he was so because he couldn't bring himself to the dispatch box to put the blame. Even when he said, yeah, the Kremlin's to blame, he wouldn't blame Putin directly. Do you think there was any pro-sympathy there towards Putin? It's an interesting question. Um, what I'd say is this. Um, Corbyn was one of the standard bearers of the anti-Iraq movement in Britain. He chaired the Stop the War campaign. Um, he, Andrew Murray, who was a political advisor of his, Seamus Milne, who was then a columnist in The Guardian. Um, th these people were kind of some of the most trenchant and vocal critics of the Iraq war. And um, students of the Iraq war will know that part of the reason for that war was that false evidence had been used as a pretext to execute a geopolitical aim, which had already been rubber stamped in Washington, DC. And privately, Blair had privately said he would um, follow Bush in pursuing. So I think that there was a huge kind of scepticism within Corbyn's office towards the stated or claimed intelligence um, wielded by MI5 and 6, and in particular scepticism towards the characterization of intelligence by uh, political parties or the government of the day. So, um, you know, I think that accounts for why Corbyn was so reluctant to conclude anything in the immediate wake of um, of Salisbury. And I would also say, I mean, I don't think that Corbyn is personally sympathetic to Vladimir Putin or his politics. I mean, Putin's a kind of uh, a kleptocratic capitalist homophobe and Corbyn for all of his um, personality flaws or however you want to characterize them is none of those things. Um, but, um, you know, we talked about, we talked about his worldview earlier, his worldview uh, you know, is a kind of third world internationalist, anti-imperialist politics. He thinks that the West is responsible for 
um, kind of, you know, neo-colonialism around the world. He doesn't regard America as being a source of good. I mean, I think that we can say he was probably neutral um, or he would probably say pacifist during the Cold War, but I don't think he would have been kind of outwardly supportive of the West as this kind of geopolitical entity. Um, and so I think that he was in pretty kind of allergic to any jingoism or collective action on behalf of NATO or the West. And as leader of the opposition, I don't think he felt comfortable with adopting kind of anti-Russian rhetoric. I think that he felt like he would be um, responsible for the kind of, you know, and, you know, Western knee-jerk militarism um, that, that he had a kind of deep critique of. And again, we can go into whether that was good or bad. That's just my assessment of what it was. Mm. And what, I mean, like with the Salisbury stuff, it's like one of the things that I've noticed when I've been looking and reading into it and stuff is when you look at the polling, poll, you know, Corbyn after 2017, he was relatively steady around the 40% mark just under. And then as soon as Salisbury happens and as soon as he gets up on that dispatch box, it sort of nosedives, um, you know, at the same time as the Conservatives. So I don't think you could attribute it wholly to that. I think there was something going on there about Brexit and that kind of stuff. But, you know, certainly at that point, that's when it starts to nosedive. And I'm sort of wondering, you know, in a wider sense, with that nosedive of, of opinion polling and, you know, the you know the poor result in 2019 and all that kind of stuff do you think it was Corbyn being let down by his advisors the people he'd picked or do you think he let himself down with his own inadequacies as someone who had never really been groomed to be a leader been a backbencher all his all his political career you know he had he's never really had a position of leadership before so he's never had to learn those qualities yeah it's an interesting question I mean what I would say in general is that the kind of good king, bad advisors view on history is usually one engineered in order to exonerate the leader um, in times of political trouble. But, you know, the leaders ultimately um, are, you know, the people that appoint these advisors and the advisors are there to enforce the will of the leader. And if the advisors define the leader, then the leader ought to get rid of them. And if the advisors are making bad decisions and staying in post, that often reflects the fact that the leader is ultimately comfortable with them. So, I, you know, I'm not sympathetic to the idea that Carrie Murphy and Seamus Mill are kind of personally responsible for the downfall of Corbyn. I think there are structural factors and political, you know, personal political factors um, that account for what happened between the years 2017 and 2019. And no doubt Corbyn personally was one of them. I mean, um, you know, we talked about the circumstances in which he became leader. He was an anti-establishment voice in a in this moment of within the Labour Party rebellion against spin and conventional politics, um, that doesn't mean that he was, you know, then suited to the actual vocation of leading the Labour Party. And there were moments where um, actually, you know, I'm not saying that we needed an establishment status quo leader, but more conventional leadership, more decisiveness was required. You can say that in relation to Salisbury, you can say that in relation to Brexit, you can say that in relation to anti-Semitism. There are moments where he was forced you know, out of his comfort box. It's, he wasn't on the road campaigning among people who loved him. He was being called upon to show incisive leadership on some really emotionally and politically fraught issues. And ultimately he wasn't able, um, especially in relation to anti-Semitism and Brexit, and, and you mentioned Salisbury, to do that. And Deborah Mattinson, Gordon Brown's former pollster, who I was on a panel with recently, um, made the point that 
what Corbyn, what Corbyn's kind of ultimate unpopularity owed to in a large part was this terrible, terrible fading politically, which was that a lot of people genuinely just did not think he loved his country. Um, she, I mean, she said that in relation to the Red Wall, um, albeit it probably applied more widely. She said that just a lot of voters just didn't think that he loved Britain. Um, and that was a big issue for him politically. Um, and it was one which, um, you know, certainly Salisbury did a lot to compound. Mm. I think on that thing about like him not loving Britain and stuff, and that obviously as a Conservative Party member, I, I have some inside kind of view of how the membership views it. But do you think that the the Tory party, the parliamentary party, were happy that Corbyn was leader of the opposition because he does seem to be that gift that when Boris came, there was that sense that Boris knew how to deal with him because Boris was exactly the opposite. You can't describe Boris as someone that doesn't love the country. So do you think that Corbyn was good for the Tories during that time? Well, I mean, he was ultimately great for the Tories because he led the party to its worst defeat in almost a century and um, prevaricated and equivocated on Brexit when Boris, for uh, all of you know, the criticism of his strategy, at least had a kind of clarity in terms of end goal and intent. Um, you know, again, uh, I mean, every conversation about politics tends to benefit from hindsight. So I'm not going to repeat the platitude that is easy to say now. But um, it is easy to now say that Corbyn was a gift to the Tories. He yeah. certainly didn't look like one in 2017. And I think there was a, a, a wariness, um, uh, you know, on the Tory backbenches towards him uh, up until his defeat in 2019. I mean, you know, they all now lick their lips reflecting on how much of a ludicrous candidate he was. But uh, they did the same in 2017 and look what happened there. And, you know, certainly, um, you know, Boris managed to ruthlessly exploit the Brexit issue. But there was a concern throughout the campaign that um, that Labour might ultimately be able to fight it on, you know, the issues where it, it had a kind of strong... A strong lead, things like public services and the future of the NHS. The old, the, you know, the great, the great risk um, for the Conservatives during last year's election uh, wasn't that Labour would beat them on the issue of Brexit, um, and that Jeremy Corbyn's claim that Boris was pursuing a sellout NHS pro-Trump Brexit deal. I mean, I don't know that people believed that Boris was always going to win on the issue of the EU. Uh, the the risk um, was that. Corbyn would manage to do what he did in 2017 and have a different conversation to the one the Conservatives wanted to have. Um, what we did learn in the end was that divides in the country were so deep by that point, um, and the issue of Brexit is so um, significant in people's minds that it wasn't really possible to re to repeat what happened in 2017. Um, and you know, in, in that respect, Corbyn's weaknesses uh, became kind of unavoidable liabilities for the party. I mean, my reading of that whole situation from about post 2017 to the end of May's premiership is sort of when when I look at how the Conservatives viewed Corbyn, I sort of see it as there was actually a genuine fear that he could get in and that he represented some the total antithesis of what they believed. And I don't know whether you whether you sort of agree with that, that, you know, they there was a real sort of um, fear amongst Conservative MPs that that could actually happen. And that's maybe part of why May ended up going in the end. 
Yeah, yeah, no, that, I mean, there was there was certainly a fear. I mean, they, you know, they didn't they didn't envisage having a conversation on Corbyn's terrain in 2017. Um, I mean, it's not why Theresa May went. Um, I think you know Theresa May went because her Brexit plan hit the rocks and she wasn't able to conceive of an alternative that had the support of her backbenchers. But um, you know, even with Boris, who had shown that he could beat the left in London, took on and ultimately saw off Ken Livingstone, the far more consummate left-wing politician of a kind of similar vintage in politics to Corbyn himself. You know, even in Boris's context, there was a concern that Corbyn might might do it again. Um, Corbyn's office certainly hoped he might do it again. Um, but as we learn, um, those kind of populist moments um, potentially kind of once in a generation. I think that Marcus Roberts of YouGov said that the souffle doesn't rise twice. You can't really do what Corbyn did in 2017 again. It's not the kind of thing you can take out of the flat pack and assemble um, at will. Um, and also, I mean, I know that James Schneider, Corbyn's former director of strategic comms has said this. I mean, there's now an understanding that um, you thought the forces of populism do not just naturally tend to the left. Um, and Boris very effectively managed to, um, you, you know, exploit them for his own electoral ends. Corbyn came close in 2017, but not close enough. And he never really managed to recapture that kind of populist spirit and imagination. Mm. Yeah, I mean, we're going to come on to the, the the election in 2019 in a minute, but I think one of the things that you cover a lot in the book, and obviously one of the things that is dominated, not just Corbyn's leadership, but also his legacy, is the um, is anti-Semitism. You know, anti-Semitism in the Labour Party is obviously a huge issue for Corbyn. And I'm just wondering whether, from, you know, what you've learned, from, you know, from, from the research and stuff, do you think Corbyn is an anti-Semite? Do you see him as an anti-Semite, or do you see him as a bit of a bumbling fool who didn't get on top of it quickly enough and was just a bit negligible? Um, I've always resisted saying, is he an anti-Semite? Because what, 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 does, what does Corbyn being an anti-Semite mean? I mean, it effectively means that he um, personally, you know, in his heart, loathes Jews or has a deep issue with Jewish people. Um, I never felt qualified to opine on that. Um, I think generally reporters don't try and say what is in people's heads. Um, what we do, what I did in the book, what Patrick and I tried to do in the book, was remark upon um, on, on the effect of his actions. And, you know, the effect of his actions was that the Jewish community felt afraid and um, disturbed by um, his uh, apparent indifference um, to, uh, you know, the various kind of unsavoury characters he'd consorted with during his political career, um, and moreover, his own kind of back catalogue of remarks which um, which showed a kind of lack of literacy with contemporary anti-Semitism. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I think that we say in the book that he, um, you know, he kind of regarded himself as being anti-racist, so the notion that he might be an anti-Semite um, really jarred with his sense of self. Um, but rather than trying to show leadership and apologising in a way which conveyed empathy and sincerity, um, certainly from the summer of 2018 onwards, he tended to feel uh, more sorry for himself than he did um, the Jewish community. And um, 
you know, I think that in the end, was he an anti-Semite? Um, I wouldn't answer that question. I'd also say I don't think he's a kind of genocidal, classical anti-Semite of the uh, Nazi variety. Um, I think it is more complicated than that. I think that um, if he is an anti-Semite, uh, you, you know, the kind he would represent would be one who prioritised the anti-imperialist pro-Palestine struggle to such a degree that he kind of happily overlooked um, outward hatred of Jewish people um, in, in pursuing that cause. Um, to that end, I mean, I think, you know, there, there are questions that he never really answered. I mean, um, the kind of viciously anti-Semitic imagery of that mural, for instance, mm. um, you know, why is it that he just didn't see that that was depicting Jewish bankers meddling with and controlling global affairs? Um, why, for instance, um, is it that when there was a a suspected Islamist attack in the Sinai Peninsula, his instinct was to blame Israel or say that he felt the hand of Israel might be present. I mean, um, I think that there's a sort of subtlety to the variety of anti-Semitism at hand and Corbyn probably fell foul at times of the notion that Israel is a kind of uniquely malign actor in world events. And also, you know, perhaps implicitly felt like Jews were um, we're not kind of deserving of minority or victim status and so not kind of considering actions and words in relation to them was was fine and um, I don't know it's a it's a very difficult question to answer mm -hmm. so as you were as you were looking at the issue what was the most surprising thing that you did learn in relation to Corbyn and the antithesis was there anything that you that did suddenly shock you or was it all? Is it? Was it all just on the page anyway? I think that the um, it's easy for advisors to say this, but I think they provided a lot of evidence to show that they really did try to deal with the issue, and that in the end, it was kind of Corbyn who was often very personally reluctant to do what was required to transcend or move on from the topic. Um, during the summer of twenty eighteen, the Labour Party had a civil war over the. IHRA definition of anti-Semitism and Corbyn you know by all accounts was personally insistent um, on providing this amended version of this gold standard definition of anti-Semitism uh, which governments and organizations around the world have adopted and you know it caused so much political heat and distraction and noise um, that John McDonnell the shadow chancellor um, was determined to just adopt the definition and move on. This was the year after their unexpectedly good election result. They wanted to further the inroads they'd made in certain red wall and city seats. Um, this was meant to be about continuing to take their argument and their fight for the country. And rather than doing that, they ended up having a debate within Westminster um, about the kind of bizarrely intricate and to most people irrelevant vocabulary of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance's definition of Jew hatred. And um, in that context, John McDonnell, who was often much more tactical than Corbyn, who was probably more strategic, he just said, we have to move on from this. Please, please, please let's adopt the definition and move on. And I think somebody else said to me, a kind of Corbyn advisor off the record said that they 
were of the view that the best way of helping the Palestinian people was by getting a Labour government. And you ain't going to get a Labour government by spending a summer debating the definition mm. of IHRA. But Corbyn very much on a kind of personal level felt like to submit to his critics on this issue would be to um, to declare, de, you know, declare surrender um, when it came to the Palestinian cause and the concerns of the Palestinian people. Um, so, I mean, it was always very striking seeing the sort of self-inflicted political damage um, and, and, and the fact that a lot of that kind of emanated from Corbyn himself, rather than as many of the accounts at the time would have told you, Seamus Milne or whoever else. Mm. Mm. And sort of like, you know, if we move on to the election, because obviously the anti-Semitism issue was a big, big thing in the election, and you've spoken about that relationship between McDonnell and Corbyn, in which McDonnell, and, you know, I, I certainly, you know, in hindsight sort of recognised that McDonnell was very much the the more astute political gamesman, if you want to call it that, than, than Corbyn. Um, in the election campaign, who 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 was in charge? Do you know what I mean? I I, I get I get I get the sense that it was quite a bit of a it, it was a bit it wasn't very organised. You know, you've got Corbyn's office controlling it, and then you've got bits of McDonald's office control of it, and then you've got Labour HQ who's doing lots of different things, and then just further on from that, you know, sort of bringing those things together. Did did Corbyn really want to win? Like, did Corbyn want to become prime minister? You know, and I suppose I suppose that alludes to the the project stuff. That you were talking about yeah i mean firstly um the answer is that nobody was really in control um during elections you know traditionally parties adopt a kind of military structure they become very hierarchical very centralized with a very clear line of authority and um, i spent half a year trying to understand who was running the election campaign and i never got clarity <laughs> on that um you know there, John McDonnell was the campaign chairman. Um, Carrie Murphy, um, when she was removed from the leader's office, was redeployed to Southside to, uh, you know, run digital campaigning according to some and help oversee the election general in eff the election effort in general according to others. Um, you know, in terms of personnel, it's very difficult to ascertain exactly who was responsible. Um, who, who, you know whose word uh, was final on things like targeting, on things like slogans, on things like general strategy, it's unclear. The reason that is, you know, the reason that is the case is because Labour never managed to resolve its differences on Brexit. It only managed to agree to disagree on the eve of the election. You know, this moment that we recount at the conference of 2019 where John McDonnell gathers with numerous party aides in the bowels of the Hilton Metropole where they're presented with MRP polling, which shows that Labour was destined for a defeat even more catastrophic than that which eventually befell it. Mm. Um, its vote share was going to go down in seats like Vauxhall, you know, Labour redoubts. Um, and, you know, the Lib Dems were projected to win certain seats. The Conservatives were destined to win other seats, often not with large vote share, but just because... Um, you know, Remain votes were fleeing to the Lib Dems and Brexit votes were fleeing to the Conservatives and uh, Labour to channel the um, aphorism of Nye Bevin um, by standing in the middle of the road was getting knocked. 
Um, and so um, it, it, it was a situation in which, you know, certain people would say we, bet, we have to hug the Remainers. Um, you know, the only chance we're going to win this is if we extract every last Remain vote from our traditional supporters, plus the Greens, plus the Lib Dems. You know, we have to show that in a two-party system, we're the only party, we're the only show in town for those that want to soften Brexit or have a second referendum. And then you had those who thought we need to be a credible lead voice and show in red wall seats that we are going to deliver Brexit and we are going to offer a kind of sensible unifying Brexit settlement. And those strategies were irreconcilable. You cannot simultaneously at the behest of people like Ian Lavery go to the red wall and say, we're going to deliver a credible proper Brexit. Mm. Um, we are a Brexit party, we're going to do it just in a less divisive way than the Tories. You can't say that whilst also uh, saying, I mean, I was going to say whispering, but you know, loudly declaring from your soapbox in other areas of the country, in Bristol, in London, uh, in Manchester, that you're going to offer people a second referendum and a possible route to avoiding Brexit altogether. Um, unless you can decide on which of those two stools you want to stand on, um, you can't have a coherent strategy, and Labour never did. And in the end, I mean, um, as we chronicled, different individuals sought to prosecute different strategies at different times based on different sets of polling data and different political priorities. Um, so, yeah, to answer the question, nobody really ran the campaign, and that's kind of an amazing thing to acknowledge in the context of mm. contemporary British political history, and it really speaks to the dysfunction and underlying strategic um, confusion that characterised Labour in this period. Um, did Corbyn want to win? I mean, you use the language of the project. I think in order to answer this question, you need to look at what the project's goal was. The so-called project was initially just the project, the campaign to get Corbyn on the ballot in 2015. Yeah. Um, their aim was to, you know, we've heard this phrase a lot, broaden the debate. They just didn't want to be completely absent from the discussion and you know, whereas Diane Abbott had run in uh, 2010 and John McDonnell had run uh, against Gordon Brown, you know, this was Corbyn's turn um, to represent the left in the internal Labour leadership contest and hopefully draw some concessions on some socialist, some socialist issues. I mean, I think um, the, you know, the hope was that Corbyn could, uh, you know, stretch the debate to the left. Then suddenly it appears that he's actually more than just uh, broadening the debate, he's defining the debate, he might win. So the project's raison d'etre shifts in that moment, far from being just about being in the discussion, it was about winning this internal election. And then when it became clear that was actually going to happen, the project again had to revise its sense of self and its sense of purpose. You know, it became, hold on, uh, this man approaching his 70s with no natural aptitude for conventional politics, certainly no interest in it either, by the way, um, he suddenly uh, is, is, is actually going to win this thing. So what do we do? Do we let him run the party for a year or two? Do we reform its structures and then pass on to another left-wing candidate? Or are we genuinely saying that Jeremy Corbyn wants to become prime minister? And um, that question, by the way, was one which Corbyn himself has repeatedly asked uh, over the course of the leadership election and thereafter. And it was one which he really struggled to answer. I think mm. it was Krishnan Guru Murthy, um, or it might have been on Newsnight. I mean, I just, I distinctly remember him being asked, do you want to be prime minister? And he couldn't say yes. 
Mm. You couldn't say, yes, I want to be prime minister. I want to be, I, I want to go into number 10. I want to lead a Labour majority government. I want, you know, I want to issue my instructions with the nuclear codes. I want to be responsible for a budget. You know, the trappings of conventional leadership and the language of being prime minister is not something which came naturally to Corbyn. What people do say is that by 2017, um, after the kind of insurgency of that election, Corbyn started to warm to the idea. Um, he never loved the trappings of power. Um, we say in the book that he struggled with the idea of even moving into number 10 and had to be bought off with the offer of redesigning the number 10 rose garden so it became an allotment and you know, potentially housing a refugee within the number 10 complex. Um, but he certainly never felt comfortable with the idea of becoming PM. Um, I think by the end, he probably felt like he would do it for the wider goals of advancing the socialist cause in Britain and around the world. Mm. On, on that 2019 election, I mean, I'll be honest, when it happened, my reaction when the exit poll came in, I screamed because I was, as a Tory party member, I wanted that to happen. I had funnily texted my friend about two hours, four hours later going, I think somehow we'll end up with 368 seats, not knowing I was bang on. But do you think that the, the project and the Corbyn kind of team underestimated the appeal of Johnson in, in England? Um, I don't think they underestimated it. I think they were perfectly aware of it. They just didn't have any response to it. Um, I think that there was, you know, I don't think there was any underestimation as to Boris Johnson's political skills. I mean, as we mentioned, he defeated Ken Livingston in a London city, um, sorry, in a Labour city. Um, he, uh, he you know, won the 2016 referendum with the support of a large number of historic Labour voters. Um, I don't think anybody had any doubt as to Boris's talents politically, um, especially as a campaigner. Um, I think what they didn't have was any response to it because of the, the aforementioned lack of coherent strategy. Mm. Mm. Um, and just so moving on from that to the future, you know, because yeah, obviously this book's been written not just to chronicle the past, but maybe for people to read it and learn something from it um so what did labor get so wrong in 2019 that they have to get right in 2024 in order to win like what's what things need to change do you think from from what you've researched what did labor get wrong i mean you know in order to win an election you need to persuade people that you have a vision of the country that is um different that is um better than what is you know what exists now and which is moreover kind of credit um credible and practically achievable mm -hmm. um i mean if you know it depends on the mood of the country at a given moment whether you want to represent that change as kind of being radical or rather being kind of conser conservative with a small c um but i think that you know corbyn has never you know with, with his kind of bonfire of policy never managed to persuade voters that he was, able, he was going to be able to achieve um, his end goal. And I don't think they even liked the idea of the end goal either. Um, I think also basic competence was an issue. Um, you know, I've, I'm, not, I'm not one of the people that thinks that whether Corbyn could do off his tie is necessarily that morally or politically important. But 
the kind of presentation of basic competence was something which ne Labour never really managed to achieve. Um, united parties win elections, divided parties don't. And um, I think one thing which Keir Starmer has certainly tried to do is uh, unite Labour or at least dominate it to the point that the left doesn't matter anyway, which is the sort of Blair playbook. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that, you know, personal leadership matters. I mean, I have to say, I don't think that most people in Britain care about anti-Semitism. I don't think that most people know Jews. I mean, there are only 280,000 of them in Britain. It's a tiny, tiny community. But what anti-Semitism acted as was a sort of cipher for the wider political leadership question. And, um, and you know, the fact that Labour was ever able to spend an entire summer arguing about IHRA after this defiant, brilliant summer election the year before, um, I think is kind of bewildering and probably from a political level, pretty unforgivable. Mm. Yeah. So just looking at Starmer very quickly, like how influential do you think Corbyn's legacy is going to be on him? Because obviously he served in the shadow cabinet for three years. Do you think that's going to, Starmer's always going to be in that shadow or do you think he's essentially going to be able to chart his own Starmerism to, to use the term that's been used uh, most politically. Yeah, it's a really great question. I mean, but will will Starmer be able to create his own legacy and transcend the Corbyn years? I mean, and indeed, what will Corbyn's own legacy be? Um, I think that we, I have to say, I'm surprised by the ruthlessness that Starmer has evinced so far. Mm. Um, I think that people thought that having won the internal, having won the leadership campaign on a platform to preserve Corbynism, but just wear a suit slightly better, that you know, he would at least kind of feign an embrace of those policies. But um, the repudiation of Corbyn's acolytes and legacy, um, and I wouldn't say the disavowal, but the disengagement from the intellectual trappings of Corbynism has been pretty hard and pretty fast. Um, I think that you know, one wider question, which we'll have to wait and see for an answer on is whether Corbyn's politics and policies um, outlast his own kind of personal presence um, and, and, and brand. And we're certainly, we, there's certainly a different conversation about the state now. It's quite hard to know whether that will outlast coronavirus. You know, Rishi Sunak turning the spending taps on now um, is sort of arguably what any government around the world would do slash is doing. Um, but a lot of people say that we wouldn't be having this kind of more imaginative and open and ambitious conversation on behalf of the state and its capacity were it not for Corbyn. Um, that might be generous and it might be that it's not vindicated by time. So, you know, again, we do have to wait and see. Um, I think we'd also, we need, you know, Starmer deliberately hasn't put flesh on the bone of his politics so far because his priority has been to win over people and win their trust before articulating a vision of the world. I mean, we haven't really spoken about Ed Miliband in this conversation, but there's certainly a feeling that Ed Miliband kind of offered all these policies on a silver platter upon taking office in order to persuade people that he was different to New Labour. But it ended up being a gift to the Tories, but they just had half a decade in which they could rubbish his um, his, his ideas. And so... I think Starmer kind of knows there's a political weakness in providing too much detail at this early stage. And he also doesn't feel he necessarily has the right to provide it. Um, 
So, you know, whether um, his eventual manifesto or programme for the country resembles Corbyn's, we'll have to wait and see. I think that because he's rejected Corbyn's kind of politics on a presentational and personal level so much, people often say that he's rejected Corbynism itself. Um, that might not be the case. Um, there are people, his shadow chancellor, let's not forget, was in John McDonnell's mm. shadow treasury team. Um, he hasn't said that he will adopt a wealth tax if he get, you know, in his manifesto, but he hasn't said he won't either. Um, so there's a large extent to which um, we don't know the answer to your question at this moment in time. The kind of evidence which suggests that both paths remain possible. Mm. And just one final question. We usually end by asking people, um, you know, three people who've inspired their politics, but just because I know that, you know, you, you want to protect your uh, journalistic integrity, which is, a, you know, a very respectable endeavour. Um, if you could pick three writers or journalists who've influenced your own journalism, your own practices, um, who would you who would you pick? Um, so I'd, I'd sort of with um, Tim Shipman, who's a... Uh, 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 wrote the two definitive books on Brexit and is next year or this year in fact I think publishing the third um, and I think I uh, sort of borrowed or stole um, aspects of his style in the book I mean I think that packaging and political history in, in, in the form of kind of digestible human drama is something that I sort of really uh, value in his in his work um and uh, have sort of sought to emulate um albeit probably uh, not nearly well I, I could say definitely not nearly as successfully um but um yeah i mean andrew ronsley you mentioned yourself is um probably the kind of lodestar when it comes to labor history um and you know i was fortunate to spend um a lot of time in america well a half a year reporting for the washington post um, and, uh, you know, I love, you know, love American journalism. Uh, I, I sort of don't think I've ever really um, witnessed a reporter dominate a beat in the way that Maggie Haberman has for the New York Times. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the ambition um, and penetration of American politics into the White House and the corridors of power is um, pr pretty amazing. And um, I sort of... Uh, you know, will not 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 quickly forget the experience of working for an American paper in the era of Trump. Um, so yeah, I don't know if that answers your questions, but, but that answers it perfectly. <laughs> yeah, uh, thanks for giving your time. If people are interested to see more of your work, where can they go? To uh, find they can you? go to my Twitter at Gabriel underscore Pogrind, Gabriel G A B R I E L underscore P O G R U N D, and. Um, they can go to thetimes.co.uk. Excellent. Excellent. We'll leave all we'll leave all that in the description box below. Great. Well, thanks, guys. It was great to chat to you both. Thanks for watching and listening. If you like the podcast or your politics junkie, or you just like my face, please go and hit the subscribe button down below to keep up to date with all new episodes. This is another in a series of podcasts produced by The Conversational Lemon, called Can I Make a Point? We'll be releasing new episodes every Sunday morning at 10. If there are things you want us to cover, or things you want us to try, 
please let us know in the comments below or get in touch via Twitter at TC underscore lemon. That's all for now. But you can head on over to conversationallemon.com for more content or you can subscribe to our Patreon to access exclusive episodes and extra clips. But for now, it's goodbye from Danny. Bye. And me. Bye.